Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM in Asheville. And Robin Collier for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. If you'd like to reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd also like to remind you we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, you can always visit imaginativestorm.com. Today, I have a friend who is a guest. His name is Alan Wolf. Alan and I have known each other since the 80s when we worked together traveling the country as performance poets with a company that we developed along with a bunch of other collaborators called Poetry Alive. And Alan is currently making his living as he's been doing for many years as an author. And he's most especially focusing and always has on young adult literature and children's literature. So Al, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Well, thank you, Nave. I'm happy, happy, happy to be here. <laughs> well, I'm always glad to have you in person and on a screen or wherever we meet. It's always fantastic. You sent me a manuscript today that you're happily editing. I saw mm -hmm. you when you were working on this manuscript about a lake that tells its own really interesting story. But what I remember about this visit I made to your house a few years ago I walked into your studio, which was across the street from where you live in West Asheville, North Carolina. Notes were scattered all over the house, and I was absolutely amazed. And your enthusiasm was just fantastic. Oh, I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to tell that story. And here are my notes in this pile for this, and here are my notes for that. So now the story's done. The galleys are back. You're doing the final edits. It's an illustrated novel. I've read some of it. You sent me a bit of it. To I'm curious. Let's just start. What's it all about, Al? I'll preface that with saying that actually what you saw there was two different books. The subject of this lake in southern Louisiana is the subject of two different books I'm working on simultaneously. And one is a graphic novel that is historically accurate. It's what you might call creative nonfiction graphic novel about the events of uh, November 19th, 1980, down in southern Louisiana, where a lake disaster happens. And I'll tell you about that. Besides the graphic novel, I'm simultaneously writing a prose novel, historical fiction. In other words, the history is correct in the backdrop, but I'm fictionalizing what happens in the foreground. And so it's been sort of interesting, the two genres working on them simultaneously and the graphic novel is probably the easier of the two and the more fun of the two because it's more immediately collaborative because i have the work of the illustrator to bounce off of constantly the whole premise of this book is a matter of a writer listening for a story and i like to say that to be a poet is to notice and that's all we're doing here as poets and writers. We're just walking around with big ears and big eyeballs and a little notebook. We're trying to make sense of what we see. 
And this story just jumps out all by itself about a, a lake in southern Louisiana that's 11,000 acres, about a mile and a half wide and 10 feet deep, basically like a big freshwater puddle. There is a mountain of salt underneath this. It's called a salt dome that has formed the size of Mount Everest underneath the earth. The men are mining it underneath the lake for salt. And Texaco comes in and they want to find the oil that forms in these pockets that are formed by these salt domes. And so they begin to mine the lake bed looking for oil. And of course, you can see where this is going. Their 14-inch drill bit drills into the lake bed and pierces the top of one of the chambers of the salt mine. And the water from the lake begins to drain into the mine. And it creates a whirlpool. It looks like a bathtub draining into the salt mine. There are miners in the salt mine at the time that this happens. After the whirlpool begins, it becomes so strong and so large that it actually sucks down 11 barges and a tugboat and a little fishing boat and creates a sinkhole that continues to grow and devours 68 acres of land all around. It's quite the disaster. The icing on the cake of the story is that the Delcom Canal which leads from this lake 12 miles to the south. It takes the water into the Gulf of Mexico. For the first time in history, the Delcom Canal actually reverses direction, and it begins to flow northward and refills in the cavity that's been created by this big sinkhole. And so in four hours, it drains away. In four days, it fills back in a completely different lake, saltwater lake, at least 250 feet deep instead of just 10. At the very, very end, after everything is settled, there's this gloop, 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 and nine of the 11 barges come popping to the surface like metal corks in a bathtub. It's an amazing story. You can't make this stuff up. That's all the reality. So it writes itself. What happened? First of all, miners down in the salt mine. What happened to them? There were people on the boats. What happened to them? Did they pop back up as well? Where did they go? When the salt water came back in and it filled the lake 250 feet rather than 10 feet, what happened underwater? Suddenly you have a bunch of saltwater fish, right? And the others got yeah, washed away. Yeah, exactly. What happened to the fish? What about the guys that were on the exploratory oil derrick platform that was in the middle of this lake? They were the first ones to notice something was wrong. When it stopped, it clunked to a stop, and then it began to tilt. And they had to radio to the tugboat to come and rescue them and get them off the platform. And they took them about 100 yards to shore, and they sat there on shore and they watched as this 120-foot-tall oil derrick disappears into this 10-foot lake. It just, imagine what they're thinking. And the thing I love about this story, as you said, it's different points of view watching the same event. And that's really exciting to me, the idea, what I call narrative pointillism, where every narrative eye is a different point 
on this canvas, a point of color and a point of very bold reality. It's the, It has its own story. Every dot on a painting has its story. It's meant to be there and it holds its own power and it has its own parameters, its shape. But until you see it in context with the other dots, you don't see the big picture of what's happening. What I love is to get on a micro level and see every dot and then bring it out and see the whole thing happening all at once. So everybody has their voice and you have more complete picture of what happened. That's what I call narrative pointillism. I have a question. If every picture has a dot, how do those dots differ? You would have to say that every dot is different if they are placed there. Without the precision of AI and machinery, I would say that every dot is going to be human. Therefore, it will be flawed and it will be unique to itself. You know, in a way, we all are the same. We're all just dots. We've all been on the same canvas, which is the earth. There's no other canvas. This is it. But we are all the same as far as the earth is concerned. But of course, that's also not true because we have this consciousness that allows us to see ourselves as individual people. I think maybe that's the beauty. When you begin to look at stories on a granular level, you begin to see a billion dots. I mean, there's so many stories all around. That's the kind of thing I like to mine in my own writing. I think in, in working with other people writing, this is maybe a sort of a clunky segue to how we help other people to write or and to be writers. And of course, Navia, I know we have been working together for over 30 years. We've had all of these conversations before how we are not teachers as much as we are facilitators. And I know that's not necessarily a new concept, but it's an important one. But also, we are writers. And I think over the past 30-some years, I was a writer, but I really started off this world of presentation as a facilitator of workshops. You know, we would perform presentations of poetry, and then we would do workshops afterward, and we would do writing workshops with people. And, and as, a, as an author, you're asked to come into schools and do writing with kids. And I always looked for those prompts, like the where I'm from prompt based on the poem by George Ella Lyon, or a bio poem, or some kind of a prompt was a scaffold that the poet could generate through the writing of the prompt. So the prompt produced a poem in itself, but maybe more importantly, it produced a collection of ideas and thoughts that could be a springboard toward the poem that you're really meant to write. I've been really trying lately to figure out how is it that I write? Because I came up with all these ideas to, for writing workshops. They weren't always what I used. And I would talk about the writing process when I was teaching writing at Virginia Tech. We taught writing process and it was a process I never used. As a 60-year-old man, I'm trying to explore how it is that I get my ideas and place them on paper and see if I can facilitate a process of exploring 
how I actually write, which is fairly simple. It's just doing research and coming up with ideas and writing down phrases. And the poem emerges from that research. It actually calls out what it needs to be through that. You know, maybe I've been doing it so long, it's easier for me to sift through all that to find something. I think we all go through the same process. It's not as mysterious as we make it out to be. I think writing is a byproduct of what we do. It's not the primary part of the process. It's the end yeah. of the line, if you will. It's what you finally get around right. to generating using some kind of delivery system. So one delivery system could be longhand, fountain pen, blank sheet of paper, sitting at your desk early in the morning, writing the way the classic writers have always written, or at least how we've been told they write. That's one delivery system. Another delivery system is typing. Another delivery system is vocalizing it into a recorder and then having it transcribed and then editing it from there. Another delivery system is what you and I have done so much of our careers. Stand on a stage and start to talk and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And if you record it within that frame of time that we speak, you're likely to have something in that recording that can be transcribed onto the page, that can be edited into a, a good offering for people to read or to encounter. So this is an exploration through the eternal wilderness we call life. People always say, I'm going into the wilderness. What are you talking about? You've been in the wilderness since you were born. This is the wilderness <laughs> because you have no idea what little creature is going to flutter by in the next two seconds. So somehow we think we have control of all of this. So all we're doing as storytellers, as writers, as lovers of language, what we naturally do in ways that allow us to expand our delivery systems more and more and more. And as a result, you have generated, I don't know how many books now with Candlewick Press, but as a result, all those books you've generated now sit on people's shelves and they take them in and experience them in all mm -hmm. kinds of ways. So that's why writing is worth rethinking in terms of how we define it. And by defining it with less uh, grandeur, it allows us to see how great a power it actually holds for us as storytellers. That's something I'm really interested in is the power of, of writing, of the process. It is a practice in the way that we practice meditation or we practice martial arts or you practice the piano. It's a practice. It's more than just doing your scales, for example. It's a way of living in the world. That's what I mean by practice, maybe mm -hmm. with a capital P. It's a way of being. You talk about going to the wilderness to find your muse. You can also, what I call, light a fuse to the muse. You hold the flame there, and it's happening all around you. We talk about forest bathing, the concept of going out into the wilderness and intentionally to meditate and to listen to what the woods have to tell you and what they have to teach. I would argue that we're bathing all the time and we just need to listen to it. I do this 
activity when I'm working with kids. And I might have 250 kids in a gymnasium. I do a little thing with a jaw harp, a little twanger, like a Snoopy jaw harp, where I get them listening to that and I get it and I make it quieter and quieter. I'm kind of tricking them. And then at one point, I'm not doing anything. And I've got 250 kids not saying a word, not making a sound, if everything goes right, and just listening to the room. And it's the freakiest thing to hear all those squirmy kids suddenly just being silent. And what they're doing is listening to the room. Almost all the time, there's an AC unit or an ice cream freezer in the back of the gym or something. And they hear it or the buzz of a fluorescent light. And I say, once you hear this sound, I want you all to point to it. And they silently just point to where the sound is. And nobody knew that that sound was there until they all stopped to listen for it. They think it's a miracle. Oh my gosh, it's been going all this time, but we just have to listen for it. To create a product, we have to put something on paper or into a show. You have to have a final you don't have to, of course, but that's what we do. That's my model. I have books. And so it's between a cover, but it is also simultaneously, it's a process. We're writing our way towards what we need to write, and we're writing ourselves into existence. There's more than just creating a book that someone's going to read, and it's going to suddenly going to be an author and live the life. It's also about you writing yourself into existence with every project that you do. You think about who you are as a writer and, you know, you write about your own life if you're journaling. And that's what I'm really interested in exploring as much as anything is not just the history, but also creating history from your own story. And if you write, then you are living the life of the writer and that writer is you. And it doesn't matter what kind of life you're living when you decide yeah, I, you're going to write, then that's living the life of the yeah, writer. Yeah. You see this all the time where people, they are writers and they write and they're working on a book. Maybe they journal on their own, but they have trouble calling themselves a writer, right? Because the next question, when you say I'm a writer, they, someone says, well, what do you write? Or what have you published? That's the big, that's the big thing. And people think, well, I'm not a writer because I haven't published anything. I know this is catch 22. I have probably written over 20 books right now and I can feel good about that. And I've got them in bookstores. And so, and there's definitely a certain sense of confidence that I get from that to say, I am a writer, but I still, to this day, I flinch when I say I am a writer. I do much more than that. Still flinch because then you get into this, well, are you a good writer? Are you an important writer? Does it matter? Do people actually read <laughs> what you've published? What kind of writer are you? Oh, you write for children. Oh, you're that kind of writer. That's not saying that's not as real as writing for grown-ups. We are writers if we write and explore. I keep a journal every day. I'd be a writer even if I didn't have books published. I've always written. And I enjoy writing. I don't do it professionally like you do. I've been professionally involved in words, language, and all of the rest of it all my life. And I have 
uh, a few books published. And I have had people come up to me and say, I read what you wrote and thank you. I figure if one person does that, I read what you wrote and thank you. That's really all it's about for me. Now, everybody else has their own dream. I know I know some people I talk to, I hear, my dream is to have a bestseller and I won't stop till that happens. And I'm thinking, good for you. Because once you know what your dream is, you can make it happen. I know my buddy Greg Pallast, who wrote, who, Greg Pallast, who writes for different publications, he's had a number of books published. The Best Democracy Money Can Buy is one of the books that Greg published. And it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 16 weeks. And he said, yeah, well, you know, I have a team of people and we just really cracked the whip for 16 weeks to keep that thing on the New York Times bestseller list. It was a full-time job to keep it up there. So he actually made it happen. He pushed it with his team of reporters that work all over the world doing reporting on all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of politics, all sorts of investigations. So Ballast had this massive momentum yeah. because he decided he was going to make that happen. So it is possible to right. have a bestseller, but you really have to work at it to make that happen. And that's what people don't understand. It's not about writing. It's about getting a team of people to push something to the point where it tips in the culture where everybody notices it. Right. Yeah. I'll add to that. It's also writing itself. It's you have to do both of those things. At one point, it's you sitting down by yourself to write something. You can't escape that. And that's the thing. People understand that. It's like, okay, I just got to sit down and do it. And most people don't have the patience to make that happen. That filters out 95% of the potential bestsellers, right? But then there's that 5% that are just so stick-to-itive and they're so confident that they will write that book from beginning to end. Maybe it needs a whole ton of work, but they've done it. And that's just that 5%. And now that 5%, they have to be able to take advice, take editing advice. They have to reshape their ideas. The whole time, they've also got to be creating a platform to give context to the book itself, which is about promotion and publicity and education, reaching out to people, uh, taking advantage of certain situations like your friend did, where it's, it's in the news, let's keep the ball rolling. When I wrote my novel about the Titanic, I did so because I knew that the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic was going to be in the news. Uh, it wasn't an accident, and I already saw that was going to be in people's minds. And so I tapped into that. You know, even without any resources, a writer can tap into the energy, the ideas that are are most relevant today. You got to be engaged on a really immersive level, I think. Being on the New York Times bestseller list, it can be great. It's really good for sales, obviously. 
what is that exactly? There's a, a lot of things that are getting those books on those lists besides quality writing. Well, that was Palace Point. We hustled yeah. the thing like crazy. And because we hustled it, it stayed on the bestseller list. And when we stopped hustling it, it dropped off. End of story. Let's go do something else. On he went. Getting a little more deeply into this idea of writing the novel. I know you have written the novel in verse, the Watch That Ends the Night, which was named by Booklist as one of the top 50 young adult books written in America. Congratulations. Of all time. Of all time. Yeah. <laughs> how about that? You know, congratulations. I was very proud of you, Al. Uh, I know how hard you worked for that. You did the, hit the grind, man. And it's a book in verse. And it's beautiful. It's well done. It's fabulous. It's artful, et cetera, et cetera. How are you able to take what you learned about creating a novel in verse and transfer it over to this work that you're doing now, where you're just doing a straight up novel? Is it different? Is it hard? Do you have to worry about the engineering? How do you structure it? See to the pants? What's the story? Boy, I'm up to my eyeballs in that very question. We come to our writing styles naturally from early age. You know, we are poets or we are prose writers, we're fiction writers, we're uh, nonfiction writers. I think a lot of that stuff is sort of set in our DNA and the, and the way we're raised. And our writing is an extension of our personalities like that. And for me, poetry was the perfect way for me to communicate it's not always linear. In fact, it's more often non-linear. And there's a lot of spaces. There's a lot of spaces. You're leaping from one thing to the next. You're sort of curating images and placing them like a montage or a collage. Whereas prose, things are struck together in a very linear way. A novel in verse, if you think of a poem as an atom, a novel is the molecule, if that makes any sense. So a molecule is just atoms placed together in a certain way. A novel in verse has the same empty spaces that a single poem does. A novel in verse doesn't necessarily worry about the connective tissues between one piece and the next. I don't have to use prose in order to make my transitions. In fact, I don't need transitions. I just have images juxtaposed or scenes juxtaposed against one to the other. In prose, which I found really difficult because it does go against my natural inclination to write in a more open way and not make those connections. It's been very difficult for me because I had to continually write and I had to continually be in the moment of generating from nothing. Whereas with a poem, it's like a sprint. And then I'm done and I take a breath and then I go on to the next piece. I typically use multiple narrators so I can even change the voice of those pieces. And so it's this natural break, a natural sasura or a a plateau. I can take a breather. In prose, you don't get that. You're just like on all the time. I had to write that connective tissue 
myself using prose. I found it difficult. The learning curve was difficult. It's a little bit, but I'm getting it better now. And you would think, and this is my 20th book, but it's my first completely prose novel. And many of my past novels have had some prose in it. Certain speakers would speak in like this narrative glue would be prose, but this is the first one, cover to cover, all prose. It's hard. I would call this harder than poetry. <laughs> so this is the story of the lake told mm -hmm. in prose. And is the lake the main character in this novel? Or do you have another character? Or do you have many characters in this novel of the lake disappearing? Which I did want to comment nobody knows about. It seems like how could a lake vanish and it not even hit the news? No, there's two schools of thought. And maybe I, I say that flippantly. My schools, I have two schools in my head, right? So my two schools of thought is like, you can write a book, uh, a historical fiction or historical or creative nonfiction or whatever. You can write it about something famous like the sinking of the Titanic which everybody knows the story of. You know how it ends. Your object is to show how it got from point A to point Z, which is the sinking. And you can use the fact that everybody knows about the ending to your advantage, because to me, that's the ominous chord that gives relevancy to Anything that somebody says, because your characters don't know that they're doomed, right? But the reader knows they're doomed. And I love the tension that creates. Now, you can say, oh, everybody knows they're doomed, so why do the book? I say, exactly because everybody knows. The other school of thought is write about something nobody's ever heard of. And man, when you can find a thing like that, like this gem, Nobody's heard of this thing, but you can find it online, Lake Penier, Texaco salt mine disaster, and you'll find it easily. You know, most people, it's not in their consciousness. You can do a search in newspapers.com and you'll come up with uh, 1,500 hits about Lake Penier disaster. You do a search for who shot JR and you'll come up with millions and millions and millions of hits from newspaper.com from all over the world. Lake Penier, you get hits from Texas, Louisiana, maybe a little bit of Georgia. That's it. I don't think people know what happened in 1980 on November 19th, because the next day is when the episode of Dallas aired, which was Who Shot Jr. And we find out that's what was in the news. And nobody died in this disaster. No human life was lost, which makes it a miraculous story. Since there's no body count, nobody knew about it. I can tell the story. There's no books out there about it. I'll have two of them now, 2025. They'll both come out. The reason I wrote two books, and one of them is what I would call creative nonfiction. In other words, it's true. Everything that happens is true. The people are true. The names are true. The events that happen are true. I might say something like Spec Viator, who's on his fishing boat with his nephew, Tommy. These people really existed. 
I might have him say, and he's out fishing for catfish, and I would have him say, eh, just another day, Tommy, just another day like any old day, nothing special happening today. <laughs> I can put that hokey sort of language into his mouth, and then the the tool pusher on the drill platform could, you know, turn to his son who's a roughneck there and said just another day on the lake timmy i can do all that i can also have the lake speak i wrote that book because i wanted to get the facts straight and i wanted to tell the story because that was fascinating to me what actually happened and as a researcher i couldn't really tell what happened really just by listening to the things I'd heard and reading the things. People don't quite understand the layout of the land and exactly what happened. And there's a lake and there's an island, but the island's not in the lake. The island is actually an island surrounded by land and the lake is nestled up against the island. There's all these nuances that you don't quite get. And what does a whirlpool look like? And is it really a whirlpool? Is it really a vortex? It's not really a vortex. It's just a big sinkhole, you know. Uh, I wanted to write this book because I wanted to have the facts down. And that book, the graphic novel, the creative nonfiction book, was really the scaffold that I was building for myself to write this historical fiction book, this novel where I've taken what I created in the forefront in the graphic novel, and now it's in the background of the prose novel that I've written. So you see all of this disaster happening, but in the foreground, I've created my own fiction. And the lake is one of the speakers in this book. And the second speaker is a little kid named Junius Leek. And you may recognize that name, Nave, because we know an actor named Junius Leak who works out of Greensboro, North Carolina. This is a different Junius Leak, but I just love that name. And I vowed always to use that name in some novel I wrote one day. And that was 30 some years ago. So I'm finally getting that name in there. Junius Leak is a 12 year old kid about to turn 13. And he has this obsession. He perseverates over water bodies. He's all about water bodies, and he's created his own encyclopedia of water bodies. He's written it down into his own little book, and he's got them all in alphabetical order. And um, the irony is that he is also deathly afraid of water. He's been living in Atlanta, and his parents are having trouble. Their marriage is having trouble, and they're going off to a camp to kind of work on that relationship. And they have sent him from Atlanta to live with, with his, his estranged uncle, Uncle Speck, who lives in a houseboat on the Delcom Canal by the lake. And so here's this kid. He's got this fear of water, and he's sent to live on the water in a houseboat on the water. You know, what could possibly go wrong? He's going to learn how to get on the water. His uncle's going to try to teach him. You know, the idea of a really good narrative plot is where suddenly your hero breaks through something and achieves some goal. 
only to find out that that goal has led him to the most challenging thing ever. So as you might guess, he'll finally make it out onto the water at about the time that the whole thing disappears and there'll be a big disaster. That's the basic story is this kid having to live on the lake, even though he's petrified of water and he's obsessed with water bodies. He's a little spectrumy. In this story, where does the antagonist appear? That's a great question. I hear that a bunch of kids ask me, well, who's the antagonist in the Titanic book? You know, to me, as in the Titanic book, the antagonist is something bigger. The iceberg speaks in iambic pentameter, by the way. And the iceberg is sort of this menacing voice. Really, the iceberg is sitting there doing stuff. It's the boat that runs into the iceberg, right? The antagonist is more the hubris that humans have and their inability to conquer nature. The antagonist is maybe Junius Leake's own fear of what could possibly go wrong. It's also our inability to overcome nature. We're manipulating nature all the time. It kind of bites us in the butt. I was just discussing this last night with Ginger. Humans really still aren't at the top of the food chain. Homo sapiens have created this intellect that allows us to have guns and shelter, and we can survive against predators who would kill us otherwise. But we're still not at the top of the food chain. And because our evolution has happened so quickly, that the rest of our environment didn't have the opportunity to evolve with us, and so we are still in the middle of the food chain, but we have the power not to be. But we still have a mindset that we are, which makes us act in selfish, destructive ways. It's an interesting concept. It's in this book called Sapiens. As a species, we're over-evolved. We still carry with us all the DNA, the memories of dinosaurs eating us, lions attacking us. That's why we attack each other. That's why we kill things that are not like us. Or... And I'm thinking of your story now. You have the lake, you have the day, nothing's going to happen. Everything is fine. We're living on a houseboat. We're out fishing for catfish. No big deal. Ordinary day in a bunch of ordinary lives. And because humans have the desire to puncture things, fire the bullet, blow up the building, drill, 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 puncture things, that's a fantastic metaphor for the human inclination to just dig in and drill until the whole thing disappears. We're disappearing ourselves by drilling, drilling, drilling in places that we really should avoid. I'm thinking of climate change. I'm thinking of all the broader things that are happening for people right now. And what I like about this story, the boats do pop back up. You know, the water returns and nobody dies. They miraculously right. all live. Right. How that happens, I don't know. So let's hope maybe this story is a way of saying, yeah, we can pierce things, but maybe some divine intervention, maybe some mysticism, maybe something will bring us out of it alive. 
let us hope. In my book, the bad guy is Jean Lafitte. I talk about pirates. You know, I go back to the 1880s, the last gasp of the pirate culture. And Jean Lafitte, who famously spent uh, time down in this area near New Orleans, and he was trading slaves after it had been outlawed in the United States, and he was still at it. So he's a real bad dude. He's a bad guy in this book. The more interesting story is what you're talking about. When a disaster happens to us, how do we survive it? And what lessons do we learn from that? To me, that's the interesting thing. You know, most of my books don't actually have an antagonist. They might have a, a bad dude who stirs things up. I don't write books that way. I just sort of do it in my own way. And maybe that makes me a less marketable writer. I don't know. I have a book called Who Killed Christopher Goodman, which is about the murder of a high school friend of mine in 1979. Nobody knows about that, of course. It was a local thing. The murderer, the actual kid who shot my friend and killed him, he's not even the antagonist in the book. It's a situational thing. The question, who killed Christopher Goodman, it's not really who pulled the trigger. It's who is responsible for the situation taking place at all. Who gave the murderer the gun? Who contributed to the murderer making the decisions that he made leading up to that? We, all, we know that the Titanic sank, and we know that this 15-year-old kid pulled the trigger and shot my friend. We know in the Donner Party that they get stuck in the Sierra Nevada mountains and they have to eat the corpses of their dead. We know all of those things. What is this greater situation that brought us to that? And what's the greater situation that's allowing us to survive that despite that it happened to us? And some of us didn't survive, but some of us did. That's the intriguing thing to me. And I don't think there's really an antagonist. He's not a bad guy, per se, in any of that. Maybe there should be. Maybe, maybe I need to write a book with a murderer. Humans are good and humans are bad. And so when you put a bunch of humans into a story around the lake, you're going to have a collective goodness and a collective badness that permeates the entire story because of the decisions that we make because of the needs we have, the drives that, that allow us to survive or maybe not. Here's an interesting point. When I wrote the book about the Donner Party, the main narrator is hunger. I, initially, I had hunger possessing all of the pioneers and making them do things, almost like an incubus or a succubus. And I thought hunger was this great, sort of almost like Dracula character a true antagonist, a true bad guy. The first draft came back from the editor and she said, I don't like hunger. She said, I like everything else. I don't like hunger. And that was it. And ultimately what she was trying to get at was if hunger is the reason that all the human beings make their choices, it's no longer an interesting story. The only interesting story is a human being placed in a situation, and the human has to make human choices. It's their responsibility. Their actions are the result of what they do. 
the crux of the matter is if we show humans making human decisions and choices and we set them up in a little situation and then as writers the bad guy is the spanner that we put in the spokes you know we we throw a wrench into their little sublime paradise we give them challenges we have a child who is sort of spectrumy and we make him obsessed with water but the spanner or the the monkey wrench i can put into them is oh he's also terrified of water to have a normal character that has all these obstacles that's the story to me it's that human story not necessarily texaco is the bad villain guy who's going to come in although they are the villain you know in this in a lot of ways it's not about making Texaco the villain, for example. It's about pitting humans against themselves. Well, Al, on that note of pitting right. humans against themselves, <laughs> we've we've reached the end of our time together. Anything you have to say before we close? Tell people how to get in touch with you no, in just... case they want to buy some books or something. Oh, yeah. Well, you can always find me on Alan Wolf. Dot com a l l a n w o l f dot com google me and all the books are there but i i would like to say you and i are going to meet in person at the lake eden writing retreat like near black mountain where black mountain college used to be and we're going to have this writing experience with a bunch of people and i'm looking forward to it i think some amazing things are going to happen our agenda is coming from the inside out. There'll be different kinds of writers there with different projects they're working on and different objectives. They'll all have different goals and objectives. I'm looking forward to experiencing it myself as a writer and as a person who thinks about writing. I'll, I'm really looking forward to being with other writers and talking about writing. And I tend to explore writing ourselves into existence using writing as a way toward an intrinsic sense of self-worth, for example, which seems very heady. But at the same time, using a very straight approach to like, how do you write a poem? Why do you write a poem? And that can be expanded into stories and prose too. But uh, I want to get deep and I want to get granular inside. I want people to leave with five strategies things that they can actually sit down and use that they can apply to their own writing needs. Well, Al, I second that. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to getting together and continuing this conversation that we have been having for God, I don't know how long. We also have Nicole Brown who's coming. Nicole is a fantastic poet and she teaches in MFA programs. She has a number of books published. If you've ever seen Nicole on stage, you know that she's compelling and has a lot to say, and she also has a lot to teach. We have some guest speakers. Mildred Barria is coming. She teaches at UNCA, teaches writing. And we have Diamond Ford coming to do a workshop on writing. Diamond also teaches at UNCA. For those of you listening outside of the Asheville area, UNCA is the University of North Carolina at Asheville. Sebastian Matthews, he's a terrific poet who will be talking about Black Mountain College, will be on the campus of Black Mountain College or the former campus. He's also going to do a workshop on how to pair imagery with the written word. 
poetry as well as prose. Kelly Hansen's going to be there for some optional collage work. Opal Keen's coming. She's going to offer yoga, yoga nidra and other yoga practices just to sorbet the, the time that you're there. And then Eliza Santiago is coming. She's in Toronto right now. She's getting her postgraduate degree in social media. So she'll be there to record the event as well as answer any questions folks might have around how to engage with social media and how to use social media and other online platforms to create a foundation for their, their writing careers. So all in all, it should be a really great week. And Al, I... Glad you're going to be there, as I said, and I most especially want to say thank you for being on Twice Five Miles Radio today. I really appreciate it, man. Well, you're welcome, Jim Nave, and it's an honor being here. I love talking about this stuff with you. I hope we uh, can continue the conversation at Lake Eden. Yay, Lake place. Eden. Yeah, yeah all right, man. Thanks, Al. Thank you. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Alan Wolf. As you already know, Alan and I have been collaborating for many, many years, starting back when Poetry Alive was developing all of the material and shows we developed in the 80s. Bob Falls, Cal Grotius, and I started out as Poetry Alive, a small group, and then we and when we decided to add other people on, Alan was one of the first ones we invited to join us. As you know from this interview, Al is in his 60s back then. Al was in his 20s. I was in my 30s, so we were much, much younger. So when Alan arrived to start working with Poetry Alive, I'd been on the road a couple of years doing shows, so I had a pretty good idea of how it all played out. And because of that, we decided to invite Alan or ask Alan to join me in a loose training program. Basically, what that meant was I would take the lead on stage. Alan would get a sense of how I did it. He would adopt whatever he needed to adopt to his style. Of course, the idea was as we travel around, the two of us would tighten up as a team and we would start moving through the shows with great ease and nobody would have a sense that Alan had just started to do this which it really worked out very well because Alan Wolf was talented from the start and he was a natural on stage, better than I was really. And so Alan was learning really fast. One day we went to a school, it was early morning, and I walked into the school and I introduced myself to the principal. I put my hand out, shook the principal's hand and said, hi, Miss Jones, I'm Jim Nave and we're here from Poetry Alive. She said, well, thank you very much. Come on in and I'll show you where you're going to perform. And Here's the microphone. Here's the here's the stage. Here's where the students will be. And so Al and I put our stuff down, got ourselves ready. The students came in. We performed. And after we finished the show, the students went back to the classrooms. Alan and I packed our stuff up, went to lunch, and got ready to do the afternoon show. And as we were talking about what we were going to do, I could tell Al had a question. He had a little bit of a bemused look on his face. And he said to me, I'm wondering, how do you get the principals to always pay attention to you when you walk into a school? He felt bad because he felt like the principals thought of him as secondary. They didn't even notice him. They only noticed me. I could tell by the way Al asked the question, he thought there was some sort of magic that I had that he didn't have. So I said to Al, hey, listen, man, there's nothing magical about this. The person who gets the most attention is the one who walks through the door first, extends their hand to the principal and tells the principal who they are. Al looked at me kind of funny and said, is that all there is to it? And I said, yeah, that's all there is to it. Why don't you try it this afternoon? I said, he said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. 
So we drove into the school, parked our car in the parking lot, and I said, you walk through the front door, I'll walk five or six feet behind you, and when the principal greets us in the hall, you stick your hand out, say, hi, I'm Alan Wolf, and we're with Poetry Alive. Al was a little skeptical, but he did it anyway, so when we walked through the school door, I stayed behind, Al led the way, when the principal came out, he said, Hi, Mrs. Meadows, I'm Alan Wolf, and we're from Poetry Alive. And Mrs. Meadows said, Well, welcome, Alan, thank you very much for coming, we're so glad to have you. Walk this way, left me behind, didn't look at me, I was completely invisible. And when we finished the show, and we walked back out of the car, Al said, God, that really worked well. I said, yeah, I'll try it a few more times. It'll work that way every single time. So the next day, Al tried it again, and the next, and the next, and it worked every time, just like I said. Problem solved. From that point on, Al was just fine. He walked into the schools with great confidence, put his hand out, said, hi, I'm Alan Wolf. And to this day, I imagine, if you ask him, He'll tell you he's still doing some version of that. And over the years, Alan Wolf has been very well received by thousands of principals all over America and indeed all over the world. So when Al and I reconvene at the Lake Eden Writing Retreat, we'll probably shake hands and say, well, good to see you again. Since Al and I have been talking poetry all these years, I'd like to close with a poem I just wrote. The first line of the poem is also the title of the poem. So here goes. Is it late enough, or do I still have time to arrive at the double image, glanced years ago in my firstborn moments before the circus, before the factory, before the etched stark face stared back at me? Was I too precious to understand that posing requires more than standing still, more than what I had to give? Posing demands I let you look at me. Look, pay close attention. Do you see the spots on my face? Can I stay still enough, long enough to feel your eyes on my skin? Am I more than an etched moment looking for a place in your memory? Will you remember me tomorrow after the dance fades to black and white? Is it late enough to be new again? Can you remember the last time you spoke to the air? And there you go, my friends, a little poem I just wrote titled, Is It Late Enough? And on that note, we've arrived at the end of our time together. So thank you so much for tuning in to Twice 5 Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations with listening to and remembering. Always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world. And on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM, and Robin Collier for managing KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. If you'd like to reach me, Nave at JamesNave.com, I would love to hear from you. What is your story? Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled in A V E. And if you'd like to improve your writing chops, get a little bit better at your writing, you can always go to imaginativestorm.com and there you will find all kinds of resources to help you improve your writing, get you where you want to go as a writer, as a storyteller, as a person who loves language. There's a lot going on in the world and if you'd like to understand it better, you can certainly write your way into that understanding. So, like I said, thank you ever so much for spending this time with me, being on Twice 5 Miles Radio and hey, guess what? 
I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>